0: I don't know if I ever even brought this up to you guys, but uh if you've listened to the last fifty or so episodes of Tim Bell Pod, every time we've ever brought up Mr. Canadian redacted man as a nod to WWE's, you know, scorching the earth of him, every time we mention him, I have censored it in some way. I'll do a bell, I'll use the actual word redacted but for the next few episodes it's impossible so to keep this from being an edited rap song let's meet in the middle and we'll just say pegasus kid instead of chris b
1: uh, Be- uh can we just say pegasus
0: i'll take wolverine
1: uh crippler too close to too close
2: how about I just do the disclaimer that Chris Jericho did at the beginning of Dark Side of the Ring? If you're mad because I'm glorifying a <laughs> murderer, stop the tape right now. I'm done talking. <laughs> also, too, guys, I'm a massive alcoholic and I need help. Uh, just throw That's that off the <laughs> shit.
0: Well, welcome to Tim Bell Pod. I am Nick Alexander with my co host, Micah J. Loving.
1: I just want to say that 2020 is just, just getting better and better. And I just can't wait to see what 2021 is going to bring me, and I'm just, I'm just going to look at it with a smile.
0: And over in the Manning cave, we have We Blow Heat, the man scout Jake Manning.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what the?
2: <laughs> that was oddly sexual on something that should not be sexualized, which is Weeblo Scouts. Especially when every oh, yeah. other commercial oh. break has a oh, disclaimer. God. If you've been abused by the Boy Scouts of America, you can be part of the class action lawsuit. Like, when do the Boy Scouts of America become just as bad as mesothelioma? Mesh. Like I don't know, mesh like...
1: something <laughs> about
0: mesh, too. Like,
2: when? When? <laughs>
0: All right, well, we have an absurd amount of stuff to get to in the next two, three, five episodes, because today we are covering arguably the greatest to ever do the damn thing, Eddie Guerrero. And I think Eddie and Owen are two of those guys that when you bring them up to a wrestling fan... It's such a weird emotional feeling because at first you're like, oh, my God, Eddie. It's like this excitement and happiness and all these like matches and memories. And then at the <laughs> same fucking time, you're like sucker punched by like devastating depression because they're gone.
2: Yeah, it's like a wrestling fans heart punch, you know, like you pull the arm back, you walk around to everybody and then you stand Stasiak, just punch them
0: right in the fucking heart.
1: You just have to not think about the ending. All right, let's
0: just do it. Eduardo Gori Guerrero Yanes was born to Herlinda and Lucha Libre legend Gory Guerrero, October 9th, 1967 in El Paso, Texas.
1: And also on this day, read into this one however you want, but Che Guevara was executed in Bolivia.
0: Oh, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So Eddie's parents married in 1947 and immediately started having kids. Uh, first Maria, then Salvador, a.k.a. Chavo Guerrero Sr. Armando, who is obviously Mondo, then Hector, Linda, and Eddie, being a surprise baby born 20 years after their first child.
1: Yeah, I, that threw me off all the time because, like, wait, Chavo Senior's his brother? I, that doesn't make any sense, man.
2: That type of dynamic is very similar to my my dad's family. My grandparents they had five boys. Just space between the the youngest and the oldest is very large. I think the oldest like graduated in the sixties, and then my uncle Steve graduated in nineteen eighty three. Wow. Um. So like basically, when Steve was like born, Gary I believe was in high school or getting ready to go into college, and the idea of such a large gap, and especially such like alpha male athletics and that baby of the family 90% of the time that baby of the family gets the ever loving shit beat out of him on a daily basis and just hearing stories about like my uncle Steve like just being a little shit my dad just smacking him like off his feet and then my Uncle Steve's, like, drive and athletics. My Uncle Steve was, like, this incredible basketball, football, uh, track and field athlete. Actually, my Uncle Steve was all-state in all four sports. And then as soon as he graduated high school, he's like, I'm done. And everybody in the family was like, why? You were one of the best athletes in the family. He goes, I only did it just to break all of your records and did it out of spite. Jesus. Like, like just because you guys were you guys were all shit bags. so I broke all of your records. I was a better athlete than all of you i'm the best one of them all and yeah i could go on to be uh, a great athlete a basketball player or a football <laughs> player but fuck you never <laughs> underestimate spite. now granted i had a, an uncle who was a world record holder but my uncle steve could have played division one basketball at iowa state basketball anywhere in division one college. Like he'd walked on and and would have made the team easily anywhere in the entire country. But he's just like, no, I'm just going to go to vet school. And I've proven that I'm better than all of you. So fuck off. Uh, That's, that's the kind of thing that happens in families like that. Is it the you know, the older brothers look at this little brother as the shit bag. But that trauma, that abuse uh, drives him into this incredible athlete, which I can only imagine what Mondo
0: and Chavo did to fucking Eddie. Shit Please. in his book bag and like, it's a rib, brother. <laughs> <laughs> One time I slammed my cousin and I got grounded from wrestling for so long.
1: What did he land on?
0: The kitchen floor. It wasn't good. Uh,
1: <laughs> we, you easily could have been in the paper and we easily never could have known you. <laughs>
0: You could have been
2: tried as an adult, Nicholas. <laughs> like...
0: let's, let's toss uh, Eddie's daughter, Raquel Diaz, it was her ring name, who is married to Aiden English. Chavo Jr., who is Eddie's nephew. Let's toss all them into the family. You have the Hearts, the McMahons, the Von Ericks, the Armstrongs, the Anawahi, the Rhodes, uh, the Flares. The what do you? <laughs> well, no, fuck you. goddamn damn
1: it. You, <laughs> you really fucking bought my <laughs> I, joke.
0: Where, where do you rank the Guerreros? You know, we just covered Chavo, all the good stuff he did. Eddie, obviously. But then Gory is like a god in Lucha Libre. And like Hector and Mondo, they're like not someone you just blow past.
2: Yeah. Once you start incorporating some of the, the other names, but like as far as like families in that Lucha Libre type style of wrestling it's pretty tough to ignore the guerreros i mean obviously you have the dos santos and santo and blue demon and blue demon jr and of course uh the volanos and some of those other ones but as far as like uh, a family of plurithrates the entire wrestling world especially on a national scene in mexico and then of course even japan as as well just a worldwide family that is you know lucha libre based i don't think it gets much bigger than that and as far as other families goes you could you could make the argument for hearts just because brett was such a large of a star owen was just a large of a star and davy boy and nightheart and, and then of course all the other ones I think that like the the grandkids was a much bigger generation. Like the obviously the Guerrero's have a much smaller grandkid section of a wrestling family dynasty. But you definitely can't blow yeah. past the importance of especially like Chavo, like we discussed before. Gory, I mean, creating the Gory Special and and influence he had. Of course, being Motor and everything else, the and being so important in that El Paso territory. Yeah, I, I it's it's they got to be top five. I don't think they're top 3, uh, but they're de- definitely top 5. The top 3 is going to be a it's going to be a very 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 hard yeah. argument. They could be top 3, but I'm sure somebody'll come in and like, "Oh, you got to look at this. You got like, I mean, I understand that, but like um I think top 5 solid lock, no discussion whatsoever. Top 3, you can bat it around a little bit. I mean, I mean they're definitely
0: top 3, maybe. From the moment Eddie could remember anything, pro wrestling was his entire life. As a boy, he'd join his dad at live events, especially the Monday show that Gory ran at the El Paso Coliseum, where the boys would help set up seats, they'd sell tickets, work concessions, whatever they could do to be near the sport. And Eddie and Chavo Jr. would even wrestle during a lot of the intermissions. And with Chavo Sr. being 19 years older than Eddie, Jr. was a bit closer to a brother than any of his actual brothers.
1: Yeah, One of the coolest things I saw was when they said they would wrestle in the backyard ring. They would take off the top rope because they were so small. And then the second rope would become their top rope.
0: Just like Chavo Sr., Eddie was a pretty good amateur wrestler, and he was offered just a single wrestling scholarship from New Mexico Highlands University in Las Vegas, New Mexico. And (laughs) as someone who has driven across the country several times to go to Vegas, there is not a more disappointing road sign in the country than Las Vegas, New Mexico. (laughs)
1: How many guys you think got busted for illegal gambling and tried defense was no, 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 no. It's fucking Las Vegas, man.
0: While on the collegiate wrestling team, Eddie suffered an ankle injury almost right away. And he got red shirted, which means he gets to set out a year without losing a year of eligibility and college sports. It happens all the time in football. While Eddie was healing up, the New Mexico Highland wrestling program was canceled, just like Chavo's story. And just like Big Brother, he would use this time to get into the world of professional wrestling. Under the guidance of his dad, Eddie started training with his friends Art Flores and Hector Ricon. An aging gory kind of coached Eddie and his friends from the sidelines, and that mixed with a lifetime of being immersed in the sport, the priceless in-ring psychology lessons from his brothers, all this would put Eddie on the path to being on the Rushmore of in-ring greats. Eddie had his first official match in Juarez, June 27th, 1987, teaming with Mathematico to take on El Vikingo and Flama Roja, billed as Eddie Gori Guerrero.
2: I love the gimmick of El Ma- Mathematico. Like, because he's got numbers all over his mask. And I've just never re- really quite figured out what exactly his gimmick is. Is he yeah, a math teacher a big- <laughs> or, or what? But he's just got all these weird numbers on there. And it's like, I'm just a math nerd, guys. Mm-hmm. Ha Take this arm drag from the wrong side.
0: So Eddie dove in head first. He would wrestle as much as possible, sometimes getting in two or three matches a night and often making multiple towns to do so. And a lot of these early matches are very important to Eddie's development, but they are not glamorous. He would sometimes wrestle in bull rings, on sawdust mats, and sometimes on straight-up concrete platforms.
2: In some of those, like, Lucha Libre events, like, I hear just horror stories. They would just, wherever they would do, like, not really rodeos, but yeah, <laughs> like, they would show cattle and barter and sell like and they're like yeah just set the ring up over there because it'd be the most open spot that had the most chairs It'd be an elevated seeing like i remember wrestling in my share of ag centers from time to time and just the hey you're gonna put something down so we don't have to walk on the dirt right and like nah just walk to the ring in the dirt and it's like oh well we did the ring rental on this that's our canvas yeah. and the canvas would be Ugh. fucking destroyed
0: As Eddie got deeper into the business, he also got into the pro wrestling partying lifestyle. And this is something that's going to pop up again and again in Eddie's story. But while working the smaller shows in Mexico, Eddie caught the eye of the biggest promotion in Mexico, EMLL, and they started giving him dates. Jake, can I ask a a noob question? Why is it sometimes EMLL and why is it sometimes CMLL?
2: I'm not exactly sure what the the Spanish words are and what it means. I think the LL is Lucha Libre, obviously. I think it, like, once Pena split off and did AAA, I think it evolved to CMLL. But EMLL was kind of where where it always was. I'm not I'm not a lucha libre historian specifically Rob Viper would fucking murder me right now. Rob Viper if you are <laughs> listening to this, you are screaming into a microphone right now. But that's okay Rob Viper. You talk shit about the Undertaker and Shawn Michaels match at WrestleMania. So go fuck off. Um uh- <laughs> One of the greatest wrestling matches of all time, and you were calling them amateurs. So I think I'm allowed to not know the difference between CMLL and EMLL. Just go at Rob Viper on Twitter and ask him. Uh, that would be your best option, and he would tell you exactly what it is. But I, I do know about the time, somewhere in there, that it changed for whatever reason. I'm not 100%, same people. I'm not even 100% sure what the Spanish words mean. So uh, it's not so much a nude question <laughs> as opposed to a dumb, uh, ugly American question.
0: So on top of the often harsh working conditions, Eddie also had to deal with living up to his name. He had to simultaneously prove that he was worthy of being a Guerrero, while at the same time proving that the Guerrero name wasn't the only reason he was getting gigs. And he had to deal with a lot of stiffing from a lot of people who were coming at him pretty hard, and he got into a lot of fights.
1: Yeah, as Eddie would say, a lot of wrestlers didn't think I deserved to be there, and they were right in the long run. It helped me, but I wasn't ready for that right then and there. Another interesting thing, Eddie said he could understand Spanish fluently he or he could understand it clearly, but he could not speak it fluently, so when he's trying to communicate with guys in the ring for high spots and finishes, that would get all fucked up, and then that would get guys mad at him too
2: well, also too, kind of a thing in lucha libre that the, the last name is very important, like if you are the son of somebody, it is a very important thing in Lucha Libra. That's why a lot of guys who are the son of somebody, if the father is a non-mask wrestler, they'll put the son in a mask immediately and give him the most outlandish gimmick, put him in a mask, just to like, hey, when you finally are good enough to... Uh, use yeah. my last name we'll take that <laughs> yeah. mask off and then then you'll make your debut as eddie guerrero or or whatever and then it's the, almost the reverse of that if the father is a famous mass wrestler the son will wrestle without a mask under possibly even his father's real name or a different name, and then all of a sudden when he is ready to become the Blue Demon Jr., then he gets the mask. So it's it's vice versa of that. If the father is a famous mask wrestler, the son wrestles as an unmasked wrestler under a different name. And if the father is a famous unmasked wrestler, then the son goes underneath the mask until he is ready to take the name.
0: While crashing with Hector in Tennessee, Eddie was able to get his foot in the door with NWA slash WCW in 1989, having a match with Terry Funk, of all people.
1: Terry lets him do fucking everything. Yeah. Terry's selling for him, all types of shit, man. This match kind of blew me away. It was one of those, like, two goats at totally different points in their careers beating up for this magic moment I never even knew occurred.
2: Well, here's the thing that uh, a lesson that I learned about second generation wrestlers, because obviously I've been wrestling since 2003 and I hit my peak right at the time that the only non ex football player or wannabe MMA guys that the WWE were hiring were second generation guys. I mean, it was so bad that when somebody joined a wrestling school and they're like, I want to be part of the WWE, what do I need to do? And I go, well, um be born the son of some famous wrestler and that's your only shot, kid. Uh, That was basically how we broke it down, and I used to have a lot of resentment towards all those second and third generation guys even though I would be like, sure, Richie Steamboat or Reed Flair, whatever you want to do. (laughs) Let me me ride your coattails since you guys have been in wrestling for a few months, uh, because I'm struggling for bookings right now, and it wasn't until I wrestled Colby Carino when he was doing the American Tiger gimmick that I finally got it, and I'm like, oh because when I wrestled Colby Carino when he was doing a mask, gimmick, because much like his father was a famous unmasked wrestler, his son went underneath a mask. I was wrestling Colby, and it was like, whatever you want to do. And he was like, basically only been in wrestling for like a year or so. But I love Steve so much, and Steve was there, and we tried to do every high spot on the planet. and I gave him everything in the world, and all of a sudden I go, I see why everybody wants to open every door possible now for these second-generation guys, <laughs> uh. because I'm doing the same exact thing with Colby now. It just I finally got old enough to understand it. This is just a friend helping out a son's friend. This isn't malicious. This isn't like you guys aren't... You, Jake Manning, aren't worth any more than anybody else's. You're just trying to do a favor for a friend who you have two decades worth of friendship with or a decade of friendship or a good done good business with. You're just trying to help out a friend's kid just give them an opportunity and set them up for success as much as possible it's not great it's not the fairest thing in the world but at the same time too i get what happens i understand it i understand why it's a thing in pro wrestling so that's the funny part now is like i'm probably going to have a match with carrie morton ricky morton's kid pretty soon (laughs) and 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 probably much like a lot of people that wrestled eddie Carry James Morton used to get in his father's bag and put all his dad's stuff on before the show and go out there and wrestle <laughs> matches uh, with like me or Charlie Dreamer. And he would do head scissors, hurricananas, and do all the spots Jeez. in the world. And now he's an adult male now and wrestling. And we'll probably have a match sometime soon and uh, the School of Morton. And it'll be online somewhere available. To, and I'll probably give him everything in the world because I love Ricky Morton so much.
1: As I was diving deeper, it was cool to read that uh, Terry talks about in his book that he actually brought Eddie in to try to get him signed by WCW. But Eddie goes out there and looks like a million bucks, and WCW is still like, nah.
0: So Eddie was a huge fan of Japanese wrestling. He always got his hands on tapes of Tiger Mask, Tatsumi Fujinami, and Liger. And in the spring of 92, he fulfilled his dream of wrestling in Japan when Negro Cassis helped Eddie land a spot with New Japan which couldn't come soon enough because Eddie was in a huge beef with EMLL's promoter that basically got him blackballed from Mexican wrestling. And Negro Casas,
2: holy cow, that's a guy that gets forgotten about in history. What an amazing wrestler. He was just incredible. Just peak form and just seeing photos of him in, in his prime was just incredible i think his brother was also heavy metal if i'm not oh uh, wow really yeah yeah, Yeah, yeah. i think i think though i think those guys are brothers if i'm not
1: mistaken Uh,
2: once again just tweet uh, at rob viper and (laughs) let him know that i'm talking about lucha libre out of pocket
1: and if anybody's interested eddie does have a match with negro Casas new japan 92 it's on youtube really short but it's pretty cool also this tour is when he met for the first i'm sorry pegasus kid and Pegasus Kid knocked him out in their very first match with an Inseguri out called. That's how they made friends.
0: Following his first trip, Eddie would start making the 14-hour flight from Mexico to Japan, including being part of 1993's Super Junior Cup that also featured Pegasus Kid, Jushin Liger, my boy Lightning Kid. I mean, it's just an insane lineup.
1: Some of these matches around this time, you'll notice that Eddie has no eyebrows or any hair at all on his face. That's because the Nasty Boys shaved all the fucking hair off of him as a rip.
2: Yeah, also too, we've mentioned this before, like we're building to the Super J-Cup. This is where the pieces are put together, where somehow just collectively in the wrestling world, there is this idea of, of pulling people from Canada, the States people that are well-versed in the Lucha Libre style of professional wrestling, Japanese wrestling, and just converging on the Super J-Cup, converging in Stampede Wrestling, converging in AAA as it's formed, uh, this idea of this amalgamation of talent, the idea of no longer is like, oh, that's just the luchador guys. Oh, this is just a Japanese wrestler and these are American guys and those points never meet. It's like this evolution that, that happened in MMA at some point in time where all of a sudden everybody could do everything. It wasn't just a kickboxer versus a wrestler. It was a wrestler that right, had a yep. kickbox. It was a striker. that was also like an Olympic gold medalist in Greco Roman wrestling. It was this idea that you couldn't just be one thing in professional wrestling. You had to be able to do it all. If you were an American wrestler, you had to learn how to roll and, and be a good base for somebody at the same time to knock somebody's fucking dick in the dirt and just be extremely physical at the same time doing her and tilt oral head scissors. You had to be able to do all of those things. And pretty much the style that you see today from everybody across the world is basically at this this time period and eddie was one of those integral guys that was able to make those transitions because i'm sure there there's like a lot of guys that were tried there's probably a lot of luchadors that brought over that couldn't adapt to the japanese style or americanize their style enough so that's why we don't we're not doing a specific podcast on them at this moment in time i'm sure we're going to do the negro casas podcast oh, yeah. as, as soon as nicholas practices that
0: in the mirror like about 17 times a day <laughs> <laughs> Working in New Japan actually helped Eddie out in Mexico, giving him the clout to escape his blackball, first with Universal Wrestling Association, and then he'd actually go back to EMLL, which was now getting booked by his cousin, and that's when Eddie would start wrestling under a mask as Mascara Magica. However, things didn't quite go as planned, and Mascara Magica was stuck in the exact same Mid cart position as Eddie Guerrero was. So with management not budging, Eddie would make the jump to Triple A, showing up in his mask. And in his debut, he would be in a six-man tag with Octagon, who looks just like Great Sasuke, uh, Mascara Sagrana, who looks just like WrestleRanger. And during the intros of this match, Eddie tore off his own mask, becoming the first luchador to ever do that, to ever willingly unmask himself, which is kind of a sign of disrespect, which got him immediately attacked. But at the same time, too, he didn't give a shit about it,
2: you know. Like he's he's trying to make waves. It's, it's very reminiscent of when Masawa ripped off the Tiger Mask Two mask and threw it in the crowd. He was just like, "Fuck this shit!" And like <laughs> I want to be my own own man, my own thing. And of course, yeah. I'm sure EMLL would be like, "Well, the, the mascara Magic thing is ours, so like, I have a copyright issue." Because I always say this: it's important as a wrestling fan, especially a wrestling historian, to go back and look at AAA in the early 90s. Vampiro always talks about it. Norman Smiley's talked about it in interviews, like how super popular AAA was in the early 90s. Antonio Pena, like, breaking away from EMLL, which kind of was like the WWE at that time. Uh, It'd be be like AAA was kind of like the AEW a little bit of Mexico at that time. That's the only way to really kind of make a good analogy of what AAA was. And... What AAA was trying to do was take some of the things that were happening in the States with WWE and WrestleMania, the big spectacle, work on the entrances, where even to like maybe the last decade or so, like CMLL was just very like, oh, we play music. The guys go to the ring. They wrestle. We're more about the wrestling than we are the show of it all. Well, AAA in the 90s were doing things like TripleMania, having outlandish entrances for La Barca where you're playing you know, Michael Jackson's Thriller and there's a procession and over-the-top videos and music and production and entranceways and and all different types of of things that that were going on with AAA. And that's what Pena was trying to do, was take some stuff from America as far as the showmanship and bring it to Lucha Libre in Mexico to kind of differentiate itself. So it's almost like the opposite of what AEW, where AEW focuses on mostly the wrestling of it all as opposed to the show of it. But very much the analogy of like, hey, this is the big promotion. This is the only promotion that exists. Yeah, sure, there's some other small promotions and we'll let them exist and they'll do their thing. But the idea of somebody directly going after somebody, gaining traction and becoming a very large event, that's kind of what AAA was. So Eddie to be in that mix because a lot of the guys that were like neglected in EMLL went over to Payne and Payne was a, a fantastic guy for talent. I mean, just you, the list goes on and on of Conan, Eddie, Art Bar, Laparca, just on and on and on. Just amazing talent in AAA, Rey Mysterio, uh, Psychosis, Juventude, all of these I guys. Know, I know. Like, you, like you, I, I can name eight different wrestlers who wrestled in AAA in the early 90s i don't know if i could really confidently say who the top stars were in emll in the early 90s
1: one of the coolest things they're trying to create eddie as a big baby face in the his debut match the opposite team gets dq'd on a fall because the three of them just gang up and beat the shit out of eddie so much they get a dq it's pretty fantastic
0: in AAA, Eddie teamed with Elio De Santo to form a new version of La Peria Atomica, and they would wrestle as babyfaces for a while. Then back in Japan, August 93, Eddie, without a fucking mustache, was part of G1 Climax, yep, where he faced uh, one of the Tiger Masks, again, without a fucking mustache. It disturbed me almost as much as a Jake Manning match without a mustache would.
1: You're almost like—is that Eddie Guerrero? Because <laughs> I don't think that's Eddie Guerrero,
2: or any Guerrero, to be quite honest. Because yeah. Chavo was like the—like he had no mustache, but then there he had a mustache. He rocked it. But Hector, seeing Hector Guerrero without a mustache, it's gotta be disturbing. Mondo, no fucking way. Should he ever not have a mustache? I've seen it. It's scary. Chavo's the only one that could pull it off
0: without the mustache. Guerrero, it's—it's it's weird. September 93, Eddie would start working in Japan under a hood as Black Tiger Mask.
1: I remember just back in my old tape days of just being like, oh yeah, I know Black Tiger. And then you finally read that one like message board entry. He's like, nah, that's Eddie Guerrero, man. It's like, what? (laughs) That was so mind-blowing when I first learned it. Well, it's very
2: interesting because the original Black Tiger was Rollerball Mark Rocco, a UK wrestler. So it's very interesting to, to see some of the big swings of these mass Japanese wrestlers. I mean, you had Sayama being Tiger Mask, and then you went to Masawa, who was more of a, you know, excellent striker, good high flyer, not as good as Sayama, but who really is. Black Tiger, Rollerball Rocco. Who, who could do some of the high-flying stuff but also was a great mat wrestler uh eddie was a great mat wrestler obviously because he was an amateur but his high-flying his fluidity his ability to you know get down and dirty and actually get down to fight i would say a little better than, than Rocco. but I, I haven't seen too much of Rocco. i need to go back because he is a legend in uk wrestling and a legend as as black tiger but just that you look at the different iterations of Black Tiger. You look at Rollerball Rocco, Eddie Guerrero, and I believe Rocky Romero was uh, Black Tiger for in, in a later incarnation in the early 2000s wow, as well. I, uh, I, I think it's Rocky, unless unless I got got I'm confusing with somebody else. But just the the, the different iterations of all that. A guy that can really kind of just do everything. He's great at mat wrestling, a high flyer, great striker we talk about the lineage of of Tiger Mask but the lineage of Black Tiger is just as incredible.
1: Yeah, I had one laugh. I don't, I, I didn't mean it as an insult, but uh Eddie said that Fit Finlay was originally going to be the second Black Tiger and I guess just comparing the two of them and their working style was just kind of <laughs> a little bit different.
2: It's like, "Oh, another like, you know, European guy right, kind right. more of a mat-based wrestling thing, but taking such a big swing of a, of a European UK guy to This Lucha Libre guy to then swinging back to this West Coast Indie guy, the iterations of it. And there might have been another Black Tiger somewhere in the beats of there, but I'm pretty sure it went from that lineage of of Black Tiger.
0: Back in Mexico, Eddie would turn on his tag partner when he aligned with Art Bar and. Eddie wasn't a huge fan of art at first, but they would become pals and they would also become some of the most hated hills in Lucha Libre history when they teamed up with Conan, Chicano Power, and Madonna's boyfriend, a.k.a. Luis Piccoli, forming the Los Gringos Locos, which I believe translates to Insane Clown Posse.
1: Eddie talked about how he he got maced twice from the heat, bags of piss and shit thrown at him. (laughs) I mean, it was that pure fucking raw, I want you to die hate.
2: Conan's talked about this before The difference between a Mexican Wrestling in America And the difference between a Mexican-American Wrestling in Mexico or American Like the idea, like Rey Mysterio Grew up in San Diego, but Mexican-American It's a a big difference between Someone like Mystico coming over Who is a Mexican wrestling in America The idea of Culture and Style and how we do things Sometimes clashes and the idea that you know Eddie someone who grew up in El Paso so he's a Mexican American as opposed to a Mexican and he could claim both if he so wishes and he did in his career when he's a baby face but to claim America so solely just infuriated the Mexican fans so much like you're supposed to be one of us as well and you've abandoned us and wearing the red white and blue and the red white and blue tights just infuriating the people so much and, and Conan also Mexican American doing the same and then you have the Americans working their way in here with Art Bar with Luis Piccoli like yeah I'm with them I'm with these assholes over here <laughs> and then all of a sudden they released Art Bar's arrest record and like oh this is a horrible human being yeah. <laughs> even though he's a terrible yeah. wrestler boo him for everything <laughs> (laughs) He stands for, even though, Fantastic Wrestler. Boo!
0: (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll get in that if we ever cover Bart, but not a good dude. Yeah. Eddie would finish up 93 and go into 94, bouncing between Japan and Mexico. And 94 would be the biggest year of his very young career, first getting into 94's Super Junior Tournament.
1: This might have been the tape that I first heard of that I needed. Because I was a huge Pegasus kid, Mark, at the time. And I was like, wait, he won this big Japanese tournament? And, it, well, Eddie Guerrero's in it, too, and he makes it the second round and fights? And I was like, oh, fuck. I remember that was just, that was the top tier. I need it, I need it, I need it. Super J-Cup, 94.
2: This is kind of like the, the, the beginning tick up the roller coaster. Like, this is kind of yeah. like the first real big tick up. Before we, we climb those big heights and we go up and down, we go on this whole ride. Like When you get on that roller coaster and there's that first tick up, that first yeah. hill before we go down and build the momentum for this entire ride, that's exactly kind of what you know the Super J-Cup 94 is, is this big tick up for the art form of wrestling. I've said this many times. Sometimes in professional wrestling, the year that creates the best creatively as far as the art form isn't necessarily the most successful financial year. Sometimes the best creative year is three years before we get to the most financially successful year and I think huh. if you look at if you look at different times and periods that the year that produces the most advances creatively, you don't see the gains in the business for another two or three years later. I think if you look at a multitude of different places in history you'll you'll notice that trend and ninety four is a perfect example of that. Business in America is absolute shit everything's very stagnant just about everywhere else Mexico's doing pretty good Japan's doing very well obviously the, the European tours are still happening the Germany tours and that business is still trucking along but nobody's making record money nobody's doing absurd business new companies aren't just opening left and right in 94 but the idea of the art form if you look at some of the matches that are happening in the sport and and pushing the art form itself it, it's happening right here in the super j cup there's a lot of other things are even happening in the states 94 that as far as the art form is being pushed but as far as things happening on a national level it hasn't it hasn't reached tv yet uh, 94 ecw is is forming and it's making its way happen and and kind of changing in like that hardcore style that realistic style that would the nwo would capitalize on just a few years later that that like what they do is fake. What we do is real type of professional right. wrestling. That's starting to, to be created right at this moment in time in Philadelphia. The idea of high spots, the idea of a wrestler being able to do lucha libre, doing Strong style Being able to do The American style And one guy Being able to do All three of those yeah. That is happening And then once you start Putting those guys Out there Now granted You know Once you put an Eddie Guerrero Out there in 96 It's not like Oh the business Is fantastic Much like what we Thought was going to Happen when People are like Oh once they see The Dragon Gate guys Come over and do this In America The all wrestling right. world Will change Like once you see yeah. Toriyama, on You're like Once they put this On national TV That will change The business No not necessarily But it will put Pressure upon Those main event guys That they have to work harder, better, stronger, and refine every aspect of their game to push them further in what they do. Then also maybe even incorporate some of the things that those guys do, and then some a a guy or two out of that will move up. So that's kind of what you're seeing uh, right now in in '94 right
1: here. One match you should definitely check out if it gets the big four stars and three fours, so almost a five star. Black Tiger and Great Sasuke versus Pegasus and Otani and it it is so much fucking fun it's fun to see Eddie in a mask as Black Tiger but still being able to show that personality because he's he's such a fucking nuisance in this match he's motioning to the crowd it's it's so cool to see Eddie just you know being himself it's like the mask ain't gonna restrict me and my personality I still make this shit the the ending has a little botch it probably took it away from five stars but man crowd's hot Gotta recommend the shit out of this match. It's on daily motion.
0: Back in Mexico, things would continue to go well for Eddie. Los Gringos Locos feud with Santo and Octagon was heating up on the build to November 4th when Worlds Collide pay-per-view, where Love Machine and Eddie would take on Octagon and Elio De Santo in a double mask versus double hair match. And I don't think I'm exaggerating too much when I say this is the most important pay-per-view in Lucha Libre history.
2: Hands down, without question, and I was super excited when Eric Bischoff talked about this on 83 Weeks and, like, WCW's involvement, like, the idea that, you know, Eric Bischoff was trying to just open up channels with Mexico and get talent and and get some of these guys out there. Like, the idea of, like, hey, let's fund this pay-per-view so American audiences can see some of these guys and then I can kind of pick through some of these guys and use them for this cruiserweight division I have. You know, idea. So it's like, hey, let's let's give a hand. But of course, you know, Dave Meltzer will talk about. You know, AAA is going to be the third big company in the states. It's like, no, this was just a pay per view to showcase <laughs> people. Yeah, no, this is a thing that obviously Eric Bischoff saw this as an, a money making opportunity. Like, hey, let's let's run a traditional lucha libre pay per view and see if it generates some money. Since we have the pay per view clearances, let's give. Triple A opportunity. Let's get some of these guys right. some exposure. Maybe I can take some of this talent if they get over enough strongly. And, yeah, as far as getting guys over, like, the Los Gringos Locos were just made after that. Oh. They were they were probably one of the most <laughs> yeah. hottest commodities. But also, too, what you got to remember about matches that are, like, four- and five-star matches that everybody forgets about. Everybody focuses in on with five-, five and four-star matches. It's like, oh, the spots. We have to do this. This match is full of spots and I have to do all this and all these things. No. If you want a four or five star match, and if you look at all of them, they all have some sort of story to them. And the story of Eddie being Santos' former tag team partner, turning on him, turning against his country, essentially. And, and then in, in the biggest stakes match you can have in Lucha Libre, put your hair up if you're a non-mask wrestler. Put your mask up if you're a, a, a luchador mask wrestler. And the idea of the son of the saint, the son of Santo, quite possibly one of the biggest Lucha Libre stars of all time, putting his mask up. Santo, a, a man who w- w- buried in his mask just for so long. Is this guy ever going to lose his mask? And the idea of Octagon, too people forget how big of a star Octagon is and Nick mentioned it earlier talking about Octagon looking like Sasuke well uh, Octagon looks actually a lot like El Generico and El Generico Uh, has said, said that he basically just ripped off Octagon. And actually if you look at earlier matches with El Generico, he's just basically wearing a replica mask of Octagon. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really huge. And then, then of course the uh, spin around and grab the guy in the hand, arm drag, that's all from Octagon. Like right, if you really yeah. look closely at Octagon at El Generico, it's just basically the same thing. And the idea of Octagon being a lawyer. Mike tenay just incredible in this match, telling that story for everybody to understand for for American audiences. That's what helped the Los Gringos Locos so such yep. a a big star is you knew the backstory you could understand the backstory so then once you have the story and the spots that they'll hit are absolutely incredible and then of course the big blow off and the, the the finale of it all of los gringos logos getting their head shaved how just important that is and then of course on the earlier card you're seeing a 17 year old Rey mysterio do some of the most insane stuff have ever seen before yep. uh, and, and like i said los gringos locos they they have their match and you forget what the main event of that card is you forget that the main event was a cage match with conan <laughs> and perro guayo you forget that that was the main event that was the main event uh, that that's when you know you have a defining match the people they see the main event and they're still waiting for the main event like well surely that match you put on before the main event that like that was far better yeah. than the main event that <laughs> you got to have another match coming out like Flair talks about this all, all the time that he wrestled Nick Bockwinkle one time and they didn't put him on main event and, and Flair was like, oh, fuck you. And just went out there with Nick Bockwinkle and tore it the fuck down. <laughs> and, and 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 Flair in his shoot famously said he was like, "Yeah, those people are still waiting for the main event to come out." <laughs> 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 and that's what they, everybody was doing at the end of a World's Collide. They're still waiting for that main event to come out. But this is also the time, like Triple A, they were they were smart. In that they they knew not just running in Mexico, but also branching out into those very strong Latino communities in Southern California and Texas. And, and running those as well picking up some american money and getting some traction that way and kind of seeing as mexico and a lot of those border towns and those very close southern california cities at, you know san bernardino los angeles the la sports arena all those places kind of seeing and that's kind of their territory where they can they can get a lot of you know notoriety they can do a different markets and get a, and of course you know you got guys like art bar is probably an easier flight from portland to la than it is from portland to mexico city <laughs> and 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 all those other guys i mean a lot of his talent lives in america even though they're mexican-american so yeah it just it was it was a, just a natural fit and it one of the things that made triple a feel so big even though mexico was like ah fuck america and fuck you these guys who think they're american now it's still that idea of like oh i want to make it in america you know, it's still still kind of got that feel like, oh, AAA, they go to America. They run these big shows. They run a pay-per-view in America. Well, AAA is a big deal where EML is still running Arena Mexico the same like, way they did in the 50s.
1: Jake is so spot on with the idea that just because it's a four or five star match, it's all about the spot. If you watch this match, if you finally watch it for the first time, there are botches. There are multiple botches. There's things that don't go right. But the fucking heat, the stakes, the crowd. The third fall of this match is fucking molten lava. It's once you understand the story. There's a uh, on YouTube. There's tracks where it's the Spanish announced team. And to listen to them freak out over this fucking match is goosebumps like the entire time. And since we're just doing Octagon trivia, thanks to Tanae, yeah, Octagon's named after his favorite Chuck Norris movie, The Octagon, but we all know that Lone Wolf McQuaid is the best Chuck (laughs) Norris movie.
0: 1994 would also be the year that Eddie and Art would enter talks with Paul Heyman about being a tag team in ECW, but while Eddie was on a tour of Japan, Eddie would get a phone call informing him that Art Barr had passed away on November 23rd at the age of 28. And that brings us to why Eddie uses the Frog Splash. Uh, Eddie had saw a luchador, La Fiera, use it and decided he was going to adopt it for his own. But then once Art saw it, he took it from Eddie and started using it. And then when he died, Eddie started using it again as a tribute to Art.
1: And then super nerd trivia, Too Cold Scorpio was the one that named it a Frog Splash because he just did the Hey, you look up, you do that, you look like a frog.
2: And, and Art really did look like a frog when he did. He did. <laughs> the, like the looseness of his legs and the straightness yeah. of it. When you see a frog hop, uh, like that, that, almost like the flapping so and the on. wind of the legs. Like that's what it was just so beautiful about Art. And that's sometimes in like a wrestler when you decide to do a move. Like you can teach somebody how to do a leg drop, you can teach somebody how to do a Russian leg sweep. But it's not till you, like, see it and how certain people move that makes it a move that's worth doing. Like, the reason right. why Hulk Hogan's leg drop was a finish is because that son of a bitch got that motherfucker up, yeah. hung it out there <laughs> just perfectly straight. Um, I mean, Road Dog could do a leg drop, but it ain't going to be as spectacular as Hulk Hogan. It's much like the reason why I do a top rope clothesline from time to time is I have this weird ability when I get in the ring, I stiffen up especially when I'm being hurled through the air, hence why the truss fall is such a big thing with me because I stiffen up so straightly um, as opposed to anything. Like th- That's the impressive thing that I get so straight that it's almost like the momentum takes me more of a toppling over thing, so it looks more terrifying. And then, of course, when I come for the top rope clothesline, my back gets so straight and I hang my... my arm out there so long and also too i've tried to time it so that way when i get close to the guy i push through with my bicep into their chest or sometimes even their head but it's a loose bicep so if i'm i'm connecting with them it's not completely vicious but it it looks like it is so it's almost like a, a top rope lariat in a sense but it it's more impressive because i have such a stiff back where if I was kind of like crunched over and jumping off like Kane does for the, the top rope clothesline, it might not be as impressive for someone like me. It's impressive for Kane because he's a seven-footer, but yeah. for someone like me, for me to be straight and then time that kind of punch of the clothesline that you need to for the exclamation point, that's why I think that looks good or wouldn't do that. It's just – it's how you perceive – the move to be done sometimes is the thing that makes that move so successful. And that's what was incredible about Art Barr. He had just this unique ability for his legs to just flop so loosely on it, thus making it the frog splash. But another thing about Art Barr, like I said, not great a human being, but wonderful wrestler. Uh, There is a sad thing um, that I saw one time, and I think it's it's Bob Burnett. I don't think it's Rob Russon. This is this is some this is some tape trading nerd shit right here. Uh. Uh, Rob, I think Rob Russin was a guy that filmed a lot of like fan cam stuff a lot of this AAA stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I think Bob Burnett was one of the guys, one of the first guys that did like shoot interviews with guys like well before RF. Like I I, I think it's Bob Burnett because he would just he would get guys in a hotel room just the way shoot interviews are done even today in a hotel room. Get a, a camcorder and talk them real questions out of character. Oh. And I think Bob Burnett did one with Eddie, Eddie Gilbert that's incredible. It's absolutely fantastic.
1: You know what year he was doing these?
2: The, the, this this time right here. Okay. Because he did one with uh, Art Barr just in the locker room after some LA show and it was after Worlds Collide because Art was uh, he was bald and he was putting one of those do-rags on <laughs> and, and he was just in the locker room and he was talking about the business and getting booked here and like what's Portland was like and I was talking to this booker but he said I was too small so I told him fuck off and he was just you know talking out of character and, and Bob Arnett's filmed the whole thing it's like a 20-30 minute interview out of character wow. basically shoot interview with him and the god the fucking saddest part of the whole Whole thing is uh you see eddie in the background and he gets ready to go and of course he has a do-rag on too because they both got their head shaved and eddie goes all right man well i'm out of here i'll see you tomorrow and art's like yeah man i'll see you to- see you in a little bit and it's just like oh fuck that's, so that's the last time I, I don't know if it's the last time it might have been the last time but yeah, it, yeah, like right? it could be one of the last times They saw each other, so it's like it's such a like it's probably online somewhere. Much like that Bruiser Brody thing that's online, that's kind of like a shoot thing that looked like a a class project that's out there. Like that's probably the first shoot. But like Bob Barnett like recorded one with Eddie Eddie Gilbert, and then also did one here with Art Bar that was like 20 minutes. But that's the most heartbreaking thing is like Eddie's like, "Oh man, I'm gonna take off." It's that idea of like, "Oh man, that's probably one of the last times they said that to each other." It's kind of sad. Brutal.
0: Without art, Eddie would still make his debut in ECW April 8, 1995, and while he wasn't there very long, this is just an iconic run starting out with showing up to face two Cold Scorpio for the ECW World TV title, and man, Eddie is getting huge Eddie Chance, and he just showed up there.
1: Dude, yeah, he it's just he, he talks about he was just blown away. He was truly surprised, like why the fuck do you care about me so much, man?
0: <laughs> they were a very
2: smart crowd. They were paying yeah. attention. They I would say a good percentage of those people got the World's Collide pay-per-view, or at least read the write-up about it, saw his five stars, paying attention to it. And it's also a big interesting what if for me, especially like me being such a like fan of ECW. Like just thinking about Los Gringos Locos wrestling in ECW, yeah. like them versus public enemy. Them yeah. versus the gangsters. The gangsters, uh, shit. Like just like, how, what would like Art Bar and Eddie Guerrero do with New Jack? Yeah. Like, obviously, it would, it would it would delineate into like a big street fight thing, which the uh. Art and Eddie could have done, but like done some like incredible frog splash off of something into something. Yeah. Like what moments would be like just ingrained into us forever? Um. Also, too, like getting those guys to pull the wrestling side out of New Jack. What what, yeah. what, what different side will we see on a New Jack? And then also, too, you know, you think about, you know, Juan Malenko there, too, seeing that versus Locos Gringos Locos at the ECW Arena. The possibilities are endless on what yeah, would have ca- huh. could happen with them. Obviously, we get this epic Eddie Guerrero run where you have these matches with two cold Scorpio, who is very forgotten about in history. Uh, definitely deserves more love. I think he gets a lot of love, but deserves way more love. He was such an idiot. fucking man. He is incredible. I remember when, when Cedric Alexander first started training and he was trying to come up with stuff, I would tell him, i go, watch some old Too cool stuff and look at the stuff that he missed because of some of the stuff he was doing. He was calling in the ring on the fly and he was trying to communicate to somebody who didn't understand what he was doing, but he was trying these interesting ideas. That maybe look back and see if there's something that sparks an idea th- through you because he was such an inventive, creative individual that th- there's something that he may have gave up on that may spark your attention or maybe go, ah, I see what he's doing. I could feel like i could do that a little bit better or, man, I feel like if I talked to the guy in advance and told him to be here, that would have worked out a little bit better. I think he just kind of bailed on that because Too Cold was wrestling Shane Douglas a lot of times and Shane was like, oh, I was calling the ring, brother, and then Too Cold's like, uh, be there when I do 16 clips, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and Shane's like, like, huh? <laughs> like, and, and his basing for something. He has no idea what's coming. And 2Cole at the same time, too, probably doesn't know what's coming either.
0: <laughs> Eddie would win the TV title in his debut and then spend the next couple of months having matches with Dean Malenko and 2Cole Scorpio, eventually dropping the TV title back off 2Cole Scorpio on August 25th.
1: And dear God, because I love you podcast listeners, I watched all nine of the available Guerrero Malenko matches, and I'm not gonna talk about each one because that would be fucking brutal. But I'll give you some fucking highlights. The best if you wanna be super nerdy, the best tiger bombs on the seven twenty-one ninety five match. That one's in Tampa. It's in Dean's hometown, so they that's when he wins the title belt. And Eddie's all class and he presents him with the title and shakes his hand. And then he clotheslines the shit out of Dean as he should. And in Dean's hometown, he gets an Eddie chant off of fucking him up there. I remember the first Dean-Guerrero match I ever saw back in my really nerdy days was the 727 one. It's another Tampa one, but this one's so cool. It's, It's outside, there's these huge chain link fences in the background, and the crowd is just like salivating for like, they've never seen this shit before. They're hot as fuck. I remember that's what blew me away. The 727 match is just something special a perfect Eddie moment. There's a gym show, 200 people. It's weird as shit. And there's that one drunk guy in the crowd that's doing boring. And about 10, 15 minutes into the match, Eddie has had enough of it and he's got Dean in a leg hold and Eddie in perfect pitch to go with the boring. Eddie lets out a fuck you. (laughs) Eddie's selling in the 520-95 match. Fucking Oscar worthy. Watch that shit. It really, it made me smile. Some of the, he sold like a goddamn Lawrence Olivier. It's also interesting, uh, they were he had a Japanese tour in between this. So Black Tiger versus Dean happened and the Japanese crowd's going ape shit over him. It's just seeing them all over, just getting to do everything they wanted to do and just building up to having more and more and more chemistry, which you didn't think was possible. It's just a beauty to watch when I was watching all these.
2: Also, to, to tag on a couple of moments, that they had. I believe there was a tag match that involved Eddie and Dean, and Taz was involved. Yeah, and there's a spot that I tried to recreate with Cedric, but I think Cedric was just a little too heavy. Cedric is the reverse of Too Cold Scorpio. Cedric has lead in his butt, or uh, Too Cold has helium in his rear end. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's, there's a clear delineation. Like You you know Cedric's there, where Too Cold, from what I hear, has hollow bones, and he just disappears on you. <laughs> um, th- but there's a spot where I, like Eddie does this, where they're running the ropes, and out of nowhere, Eddie hooks the arm of the guy who's standing in the middle of the ring, and Eddie spins around, and it ends up into an arm drag. They do almost like a, like a 180, but it's like a turn. It's like a hook. It's like a... It's,
1: it's like merry-go-round arm drag. That's what I Yes, merry-go-round arm drag is the best <laughs> way to
2: put it, and I tried to do it with Cedric one day like at the office like between pulling orders. And I was like, uh, Cedric, let's give this a shot. I was trying to explain it to him, showed him. We went in the back, and we ran it. I was, of course, being the post for it because I wanted to try it in a match with Cedric and I was like, you should, you should give this a shot. And I hooked him and when I went over for the the flip, I spiked myself as hard as possible. <laughs> like, I basically gave myself, uh, I- I'm surprised I didn't give myself a stinger, but I'm like, yep, we're never doing that again because I landed square on the top of my head and I should be Dead right now <laughs> um, that's why I'm so glad we don't have the wrestling ring in the back of high spots anymore just like I would see a spot and let's go try it and uh-huh. like two o'clock in the afternoon on a Tuesday while pulling orders uh, was always a weird thing also too the the spot that you see a lot with the Guerrero Malenko matches is the tornado DDT and the push off. <laughs> yeah and I did that to Caleb Connolly one time like I was Dean and he was Eddie
1: uh-huh.
2: and it was going to be a, a, a cutoff where I go to push Caleb. And I told and I would tell him to sell up on his on his like hands and knees and I would come with like a fucking kick right to the side. Not so much like a, a Randy Orton, but more like a, a Chono kick to the face type thing I was trying to do while the guy was on the on the ground and do it right, bullet right. last second and keep my leg loose but like connect with it just properly. So yep. chuck him off like real fucking good. And I was cool, like, I got him just like fucking Dean got Eddie <laughs> and He's not on all fours. I go, motherfucker, did you forget the spot? Fuck you. God damn it. I start running over, thinking he's going to get up. He doesn't. I run over. I get close to him. As I get close to him, he goes, I can't feel my legs. Okay. I can't feel my legs. Oh. I can't feel my legs. <laughs> and right before we went out there, they told us to let's say early in the show they told they, they were mad that we were there they gave us like a pity five minute match between tournament matches then all of a sudden they're like hey ruckus is going to be late and he's just after you we'll give you seven minutes now <laughs> then they're like ruckus isn't even here yet we need you to go 15 <laughs> so basically we went from only getting five minutes to seven minutes to now 15 and then as wow. like before, we go, before we go out there like stretch as much as possible don't go home until we tell you we go out there and two minutes in caleb Conley can't feel his legs <laughs> We, we get through the match I, through, the shit, through me doing the shittiest camel clutch of all time and getting him through, and then him finally <laughs> feeling better. We get through the fucking match. He immediately passes out in the back. Oh, my and, God. Uh, and the EM, EMTs are there, and like his girlfriend at the time is off hitting on somebody else. And so that's basically where me and Caleb became friends for life is because I was like, man, if nobody is a friend of this kid right now, nobody will take care of him. Oh, um, so kid. it's, it's, so it's, just it's very, it's very interesting that because of, uh, Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko, I, I have almost died and I've almost murdered one of my friends, <laughs> like <laughs> nice. because, because of these, just trying to recreate what these gentlemen did on a nightly basis in ECW. Like I almost murdered somebody and almost murdered myself. That's how incredible the stuff you were seeing to kind of add a little validity to it.
1: And I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to ask anyway. Is it easier to be told you have to do five and then have to do fifteen in comedy or wrestling, Jake? Uh,
2: I think wrestling—you can kind of like you can add a little bit of time with stuff. Like you know, comedy, you gotta have jokes. If you if you don't yeah. ha- if you don't have ten minutes, you don't have fucking ten minutes. Where you know wrestling, you can if you don't have fifteen wor- minutes worth of moves, don't worry, you can bullshit your way through it.
0: That's that's the difference. Just grab a headlock on the stool and milk it for all it's worth. Mm hmm.
2: And, you know, and then just kind of laugh at your own (laughs) jokes and then hit the microphone against your thigh and do all that type of stuff.
1: I figured you guys were going to go for. So where are you guys from?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Crowd work is never a way to make up for not having (laughs) minutes.
1: I
0: am one of the worst comics on planet Earth at crowd work. Like I I
1: can't. No, not you. Nick. (laughs) I just don't believe that. And uh, before we get to the creme de la creme of the ECW run, I got to recommend the Eddie and the Steiners versus Cactus Jack, Malenko, and Two Cold Scorpio and a six man. Everybody gets their moment to shine. At one point, the Steiners hoist up all three opponents and let Eddie do top rope maneuvers onto all fucking three of them. Different ones for each one. It's a spot fest craziness. It's It's fun as fuck
0: and then we get to not just one of the best ecw matches of all time but one of the most emotional moments in pro wrestling august 26 1995 uh, after eddie dropped the belt to two cold scorpio the following day him and dean had their very last ecw match as both were heading to wcw two out of three falls match and just holy shit
1: The atmosphere starts off right when you get the visual of Joey Styles in the ring, and then in the background, there's a big, long, like, computer printout sign that just reads, Bischoff sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it sets the tone beautifully.
2: Well, and I also like to, like, people think about that match and just assume everything in it is absolutely 100% perfect. Yeah, right? You know, like, everybody, like, sometimes when you think about matches and you hear about how great it is, like, oh, it was a great match, and I always tell guys this, like, when they, ha- they make a mistake early in the match, like, oh, the match isn't as good as it was supposed to be. And I always tell them, like, watch uh, Malenko Guerrero two out of three falls. And they're like, oh, well, that kind of happened. Well, yeah, because it's just, like, during that period of time they called it in the ring because they, those guys are still of that generation where like yeah this is what we'll do this spot we're going to do we've done this spot before okay let's go out and just go do this they also too want to keep it loose they also want to feed off the audience but okay yeah, they probably we'll give them more wrestling if they want wrestling we'll give them more rope spots if we want whatever it is we'll figure out what they want out there and then there's miscommunications it's like oh shoot you know like it was in that time period where the, that shit happened. But everybody, you know, holds it as such a holy grail that they forget that these guys were still trying things. They were still working on their crowd. Yep, they're still yep. open to listening to the crowd as opposed to this is the match that everybody's going to like when I go out yeah. there. They still were still even at that time in their craft. They're like, let's go out and try this or like, mm, let's just feel it out there on this. Let's be engaged. Let's pay attention to what the crowd wants. And like, oh, we made a mistake. That happens. Let's keep moving. Don't worry. We get plenty of good stuff later on. We'll get to it. And And not getting flustered by that. And that shows their, themselves as pros, is they could stumble a little bit and then go, oh, it's fine, we got, we got these great spots we know work because we tried this yeah. at Drexel PA months ago. <laughs> and then also, too, like the big pageantry afterwards of like sending these guys off, which is kind of something that is a bit over-fucking-done in indie wrestling. Oh, I've, I've been in Ring of Honor for two years and I've only been wrestling for three, and now I'm signed with WWE now. My home promotion give me a send-off. <laughs> And then I got to do three send-offs at three different promotions because, you know, like AEW's got to give me one, BWG's got to give me one, and then my my Indie Fed in Tennessee where I started has got to give me one. And then it always felt like, well, okay, well, we got to give one for this person too. And it, it, it seems like the, like the send-off was like three different fucking promotions.
1: It's like when you have a, all your parents were divorced and you have three different Christmases.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. And it's like... So fucking overdone, especially with WWE used to sign fucking eight people every six fucking <laughs> weeks. Sorry that we got on a big delineation right there.
1: That's fine. But, I just but, think it's but, interesting but, but, thing but, that you haven't figured out that all of those people just joined in together to play a huge practical joke on you <laughs> and it goes on forever and ever.
2: Forever. <laughs> even in a pandemic. But, yeah, like, this at this moment in time, it wasn't overdone and also wasn't done a whole heck of a lot, yeah. acknowledging that this guy is going yeah, over here, right. which it was something they would do and not show footage of. But they put this on their TV. Anytime in territory wrestling the guy leaves, it's a loser leave town and goodbye. And anytime somebody in ECW before was like, okay, he got signed by the Fed, well, job to this guy on the way out and that's it. But the idea of we'll have these guys wrestle, we'll give this to the fans, save your goodbyes, Give your speeches. Tell everybody thank you. That was one of the things that made ECW kind of real. And, yeah. and also, too, pulled the curtain back on these wrestlers that it's like, hey, these matches we performed in front of you guys, these weren't <laughs> just matches we were paid for. Like, this was me wrestling somebody as incredible as Eddie and you guys loving that. And we loved how you guys loved it. Like, saying that, and that kind of made it real. And, like, I don't know if Cactus had kind of done his farewell speech and his thing with, like, Stevie and Blue Meanie, Like, that was, that was like, a big thing. And that kind of became, like, a thing in ECW. Like, hey, this guy's going up, or this guy's leaving to go do this. I think they kind of did something with Shane Douglas, but it was more like, fuck you, I'm finally getting all the money in the world from Vince now. (laughs) It wasn't, like, acknowledging, like, hey, these guys are great, they're going to go on opportunities, and go look to you and hope you make millions of dollars. Like... Putting that on your TV is was definitely a very odd thing at that time. Where now it's so fucking numbing right now.
0: I mean, we're still only in the mid '90s here, so kayfabe is still kind of alive and well. We can't be far from the curtain call, like ruining Triple H's life because they broke kayfabe. So to have all the wrestlers, hills and faces, come out and like carry them off—that's not something really Mm -hmm. like any promotion would do.
1: The, the one thing that I didn't think of when I, when I rewatched, it was like, I don't know if I've ever seen another match where the, on the third fall, they both get their shoulders down. That was so fucking the- nuts.
0: That, that was beautiful, man. <laughs> I was just like, wait, you can do that? That's allowed in a two out of three fall?
1: <laughs> but it, it's kind of that situation where it's like, okay, they're like, kind of like you're saying, the kayfabe's broken. We're doing this to send them off equally because we love them both just as much. But when the announcer says, we have a draw, maybe the only time everyone, I've heard a standing fucking ovation for the draw call. And then an ECW chant explodes out of a draw. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen a draw get so much fucking love. And I dare anyone in the fucking world to not cry after Dean and Eddie hug right after Eddie tells Dean that he's one of the best wrestlers he's ever encountered in the whole world. God, just like I already said, rewatching that match. If, if you're listening to the podcast, I recommend to do it again. As much as you love wrestling, it's not a perfect match, but Jesus Christ, the fucking love that is shown for just the art form of wrestling. Goddamn, man.
0: And with that, we will pick up on Eddie Guerrero part two as he heads to WCW. Made it through one episode without crying.
2: Well, this is the uptick on the roller coaster. Yes. But, uh, As roller coasters do, they go down at some point in time, and we're going to unfortunately hit some downs, and it's going to come in Episode 2 and ultimately in Episode 3, so there's going to be ups and downs from now. Here on out, we've been ticking our way up the roller coaster, and we're about ready to reach the peak before we start seeing some downs in this story, so be prepared and buckle up.
0: I want to give a big thank you to everyone who got one of our uh, autographs. That was really cool just to see happen in real time.
1: Yeah, I got to watch the video. I didn't watch it because I'm a real poser of my very own podcast. But thank you guys so fucking much.
0: And then we also have to give a big shout out and thank you to all of our Patreons, Patreons, Patreons. And we got a couple new ones, Jake. Yes, thank you, Jim Renson and Daniel
2: Bessels. Those guys, I just mentioned that I have a podcast. Handbell Pod, and I did it on the Labor Day sell for the High Spots Auctions, and those guys were like, you have a podcast, Jake? And they immediately not only subscribed, but also joined the Patreon That's within minutes awesome. of me mentioning wow. that I had a... <laughs> Like, they, Holy they, shit. They, they they, asked about it. I told them about it. Minutes later, they got in the feed. And like, all right, already subscribed and already a Patreon member. Like, it was Whoa. a minute of just mentioning of, of doing that. That's how awesome they are. And Jim Rensen, all the way in the Netherlands, I appreciate you so much. And Daniel Bessel's rocking with Dan. Can't thank you enough for jumping on the 10-bell pod Patreon train.
1: Seriously, the fact when Nick told me we got a patriot Patreon you fuck me up, Nick, saying it all weird. That we got one from the Netherlands, I seriously like my little goosebumps. It was like, really? Internationally? Fuck. Thank you guys well, so much.
2: And and Jim's friend who he consolidates a lot of orders with on the high spots auctions, Gerard Butenberg, when he was bidding on one of the early auctions. It kind of blew us away, like, really, is this happening? Uh, Gerard Buttenberg. hopefully you can become a Patreon member, but Gerard, yeah. he won an auction for Teddy, one of Teddy Long's suits that he wore on SmackDown. <laughs> so every time I see Jim's name and Gerard's name, it always just makes me smile, because I just picture this guy in the Netherlands just walking into every room going... <laughs> Let me holler at you. <laughs> We're going to make this a tag team
0: match uh, <laughs> or whatever Netherlands accent there is. I wanted to make a joke of some sort. I was uh, that wasn't like, ha ha, what Uh shoes? So I was like, they're called I was looking up these facts about the Netherlands. And by like fact seven, I was like, holy fuck, I think I'm going to move to the Netherlands. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the best country I've ever read about in my entire life.
1: I could just hear you beckoning to Spencer in the middle of you reading the fucking shit. <laughs>
0: all right well that's gonna do it for part one uh patreon.com slash timbellpod timbellpod timbellpod.com find us on social medias fucking vote for the love of god i don't know when this is coming out
1: see you in part two Uh, this is Jimmy James, P.P. Cornette here, and I know you're too busy buying AEW shirts for your mom and your grandma and everybody because you gotta get everybody in the family watching the AEW to get the ratings up to beat NXT, but if you could just go to Patreon and give them Tim Bell Pod Boys some money, I know they'd appreciate it because they actually do real moves and they know how to work a match unlike these, these spot monkeys, so quit buying the AEW
2: shirts and give Tim Bell Pod some money. Wendy's.